Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series in 1 Thessalonians called Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times. So let's turn to our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In the early part of what would become called the Cold War, many people were deeply panicked. They'd gone through the First World War, and it really wasn't the war to end all wars, and then they had gone through a global pandemic, resulting in some 50 million deaths. Then came the Great Depression with millions out of work. Then came the Second World War. It was a time of horror. And finally, both the United States of America and the Soviet Union had access to a nuclear weapon that could end all life on Earth. No one knew when the Soviets would launch the first attack or where it would happen. Those early days of the Cold War was a time of great distress and not without reason. If you want reason to worry, those folks had plenty of it. C.S. Lewis wrote to people living in those difficult times by asking a question. He asked, how are we to live in an atomic age? And he writes, I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age, when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you're already living in an age of cancer, and so on. And and then Lewis went on to say, Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. Yes, we know. There are untold immediate causes of death. Everything from age-related deaths to wars to murder to accidents on freeways to the untold amount of human diseases. I guess what I'm saying is this. Whether it be a global pandemic or something else, we live on this side of the fall in distressing times. But sometimes the distress of the human condition is hidden from our eyes and we act as if everything's just fine. And then suddenly... Our illusions are torn from us, and we are suddenly forced to see what but a thin veil has hidden from us. But now it's before our eyes, and we're tempted to panic. Over the next three weeks, I want to speak about remaining steadfast in distressing times. This will be a study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and as we work our way through this book, we will find an early church in a place that now, well, we would call it northern Greece, or back then, would have been called the Roman province of Macedonia. Well, the city of Thessalonica was located right along the Aegean Sea. And again, if you don't know where that is, let me help you. The nation of Greece, well, it's a peninsula that sticks down into the Mediterranean Sea. And and there is a body of water, which, which is actually an extension of the Mediterranean, and it stretches from Greece to Turkey, and that's the Aegean Sea. Thessalonica is at the north end of the Aegean, and it enjoys the best natural harbor on the Aegean. And so for ancient shipping, that was a highly prized port of call. Hence, Thessalonica became a very important ancient city. It was a place of commerce because all the goods that moved through that area. And best we know, at the time of Paul, it was probably a city of about 100,000 people. And in the ancient world, that was a large city indeed. But not only did the city have one of the best harbors in the world, it also boasted one of the best ancient highways. The highway was called the Ignatian Way, or as as the Romans called it, Via Ignatia. 
This was the road that went west to east and moved goods over land. So you have to think if you were going to move goods, this was a very good place for ships to unload cargo and then move it overland to a great many other places. So Thessalonica was an economic hub. And the city had one more factor going for it. It was a political one. You know, back in the day when Augustus was battling Mark Antony for leadership in Rome, the Thessalonian political leaders backed Augustus. That is to say, they backed the right horse. And when Augustus became Caesar Augustus, well, he remembered. And so Thessalonica received a favored city status, which gave them a high degree of local autonomy. There were tax concessions from Rome, and all that made their economy boom. And furthermore, it also brought political stability as Rome would never turn against them. Indeed, Rome would never even occupy them. Hence, political decisions were in the city. They were not made in faraway Rome, but they were made by a local city council. They had freedom in spades. But we need to consider one more thing before we move on. The city was also, like most other Greco-Roman cities, it was highly religious and highly pagan. There were temples to Zeus, to Epaphrodite, many more. And of course, there was a temple to the emperor of Rome, which inspired emperor worship. There were even temples to Egyptian gods like Isis. And furthermore, there was also a very large Jewish synagogue in that city, which, interestingly enough, even attracted a great many Greeks. See, viewing it on our terms, the city was multi-religious in which there was, at least from the outset, religious freedom. You could worship in the manner in which you had chosen, free from persecution. Now, given what I've just described, you might wonder how I could have entitled this three-week series, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times. Given that the local economy was good, the political situation was stable, freedom to do as you wanted was highly prized, and that one could worship in the way in which you thought best. I mean, what could possibly be distressing or what could possibly go wrong? And yet there was one little caveat. You had the freedom to do and believe what you wanted, provided that you also poured out libations to Caesar and confessed him to be Lord and God. And before we get into what all went wrong, let's explain how Paul, the great apostle, missionary, and founder of multiple churches, ended up in Thessalonica in the first place. Paul was then on his second missionary journey. Initially, Paul had no more in mind than to stay within the Roman province of Asia, or as we know it today, the nation of Turkey. We read about this plan in Acts 15, verse 36. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. But as we know, God had other plans. And to make a long story short, let's read Acts 16, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Well, Paul then concluded that God had called his missionary team to cross the Adriatic and sail for Macedonia. He arrived in the small port city of Neapolis, and then he followed the Ignatian Way, and he came to the city of Philippi, where he had a great deal of success, but also he ran into such strong reaction that resulted in him being arrested and then beaten and then thrown into prison. In the end, the local government in Philippi realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, so they just released him from jail and asked him to leave the city. But this was not before he had led Lydia to Christ. He had also led the Philippian jailer to faith in Christ, good many of others as well. A church had been started. 
And with that, Paul returned to the Ignatian Way, and then he would have walked about 145 kilometers, or probably it was about a five-day journey, and then he arrived in the city of Thessalonica. Well, as I've said, there was a, a very large Jewish synagogue in that city, which, of course, made it very different than Philippi, which, which had virtually no Jewish community at all. And the way that synagogues worked, when there was a notable Jewish rabbi who had arrived in town, the Jewish leadership in the local synagogue would then offer the rabbi an opportunity to teach. Now, we know that Paul had already an internal determination that the gospel was for the Jew first and then for the Gentile, and so this worked out very nicely for him. He went to the Jews first. And so, as the Bible tells us, for three successive weeks or three successive Sabbaths, Paul then reasoned with the members of that synagogue, and he took the scriptures, that is, in our language, he went to the Old Testament, and he used Old Testament texts to prove that God had called the Messiah to suffer and then to rise from the dead. I have no doubt that Paul made a great use of Isaiah 53 at that point. And then again, from the scripture, he then goes about to show that the expected Messiah was in fact Jesus. And I suppose he started from Genesis 3, and he worked his way through many, many Bible texts, and he showed that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah, from his birth to his death to his resurrection to the promise that he would rule over all things. Well, now Paul presented his case so well that he persuaded some of them in the synagogue. And furthermore, the Greeks who worshiped there, among their number, there was a great many who were persuaded. And also, says Luke, that there were a great number of the leading women of the city. Also, they came to believe. It was a marvelous beginning. Again, as I've said, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, after all, in this place of religious freedom, a church had begun. And that would have no difficulty in being accepted. But something did go wrong. How suddenly a, a wonderful beginning would result in very distressing times. See, that's the thing about distressing times. I mean, quite often we don't slowly ease into them. Quite often they are sudden, out of the blue, and then we're in the middle of them. Hi, this is Joshua from InDoubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Every week, InDoubt invites young adults into a conversation about the very real and challenging questions of faith, life, and culture. Our goal is to confront life's issues with the help of guest pastors and Christian leaders and to dive into the Bible to discover its truth and relevance for living life as a follower of Jesus. Join myself, Daniel, or Isaac every week along with special guests from around the globe to discuss things that matter most to you. InDoubt can be heard through our podcast, mobile app, or on radio, and you can check out all of our programs and resources at indoubt.ca. InDoubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada and possible only through the generous gifts of those who share our heart to engage a new generation with the Bible. For more information, or if you would like to support InDoubt with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca. The first sign that something was seriously wrong was the leadership of the synagogue didn't just disagree with Paul, they were profoundly jealous of his success. And they found some of the worst troublemakers in the city, which I have to assume came from the wider Gentile community, and they formed an alliance with them and they formed a mob. 
Apparently, they had gotten news of Paul's success from other places, and now, twisting that success into something sinister, they were ready to turn the city against Paul. Suddenly, a a peaceful situation turned into distressing times. I mean, how quickly these things can happen. There are times when trouble seems to indicate that it's coming, but often it surprises us. That sense that I'm not feeling well, but I'm sure it's nothing, and then it's cancer. Or when the news comes that there has been an accident and you feel your heart quicken and your stomach feels suddenly like it's turning over inside you as you wait for the news. I know that when the pandemic of 2020 hit us, we were shocked to find out that how suddenly the stores were closed, the the border was shut down. We were told not to come closer than two meters from anyone. Churches were closed, all large gatherings ceased, and we were told to brace for the worst. How could the economy survive such a shock? Now, in Paul's case, he wouldn't have been as surprised as we might think. You remember what he said in Acts 20, verse 23. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. God had prepared him, and yes, the worst would happen. But and here's my point. The new believers in Thessalonica didn't know that. And after they had received the joyous news that the Messiah had come, and that he had died on the cross for their sins, and that their very first experience would be forgiveness. And then after that, they were launched into distressing times. So let's come to that part of the story. Paul and his missionary team were staying in Thessalonica, and they'd been staying in the home of a man named Jason. We don't know how it came to be, but it did. And when the riot started, a mob had been told that Paul and his team had been turning the world upside down, and that they had been leading sedition and treason against the Roman Empire. He was telling people not to be loyal to Caesar, and eventually that would threaten the freedom of Thessalonica. So these men, the mob were told, were acting against the decrees of Caesar, and indeed they were even proclaiming that there was another king, a man named Jesus, whom they were calling others to follow. So as you can see, these are powerful half-truths and total lies. Yeah, Jesus is king, but as Jesus had said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Caesar nor the citizens of Thessalonica had anything to fear for in time. The new believers would be taught to subject themselves to governing authorities, to live peaceful and quiet lives, and to minister to others out of love. But as we all know, mobs aren't interested in the finer points of Christian theology and So what went from joyful news that that God had sent a Savior into the world ended up in a massive riot that shook the entire city. And what does the mob do, and where do they go? If Paul is staying in Jason's house, that's where they go. Suddenly everyone is there. That's everyone except Paul and his team, who are out somewhere else at that moment. It's just Jason there and a few other believers, but suddenly they're dragged out of their own house. And then an instant, Jason is taken by an angry mob, probably roughed up somewhat, dragged before City Hall. The authorities of the city come out and the mob, breathing hatred and anger by now, shouting. These men have been turning the world upside down, creating hatred and telling people to abandon loyalty to Caesar. And we have a temple in this town that's dedicated to Caesar and more so, if the Romans hear of this sedition, it's going to end our free city status. Well, as you can imagine, City authorities are deeply disturbed when they hear these things, and and then they do the cowardly thing. They hold Jason responsible for the unrest, and they force him to make a financial payment of security to ensure that no more riots will happen in the future. 
And that very night, deeply shaken by an experience that these new believers would never have thought possible, they decide to call Paul and to send him and Silas away to Berea. Clearly, the new believers in Thessalonica were terrified, and Paul and Silas certainly understood. These new believers needed to keep living in that city. And that's how Paul's ministry in Thessalonica began and ended. I assume it didn't last more than three weeks, probably no more than a month and a half at the longest. New believers, new church, then trouble, then gone. How suddenly we come to these times. It wasn't their fault, but it didn't matter. These new believers went from the joy of discovering the Savior of the world to being the most despised people in the city. You know, it's important for us to hear about these things today, lest we should think that when the world suddenly changes, we're the only people that have ever gone through something like that. It's not true. Sudden troubling times are so frequent that we should be surprised that we have lived through peace and safety for so long. We have lived in remarkable times. But trouble does come, and believers aren't spared from trouble. In all sorts of places around the world, the trouble that believers face is often because of their faith. Well, but let's keep telling our Thessalonian story. Paul and Silas traveled to Berea, and they found a very different attitude in that city. That is, until the synagogue leaders from Thessalonica found out where they were, and so they sent the mob to Berea, and Paul is then taken by ship, and he sails all the way south to Athens. But his mind won't stop thinking about Thessalonica and how he feels he's abandoned these new believers. He, he wants to go back, but his companions convince him, look, you can't. Well, instead, they'll send Timothy, and he will help the new believers get started. Well, Timothy goes to Thessalonica, and Paul continues to travel south until he comes to the largest Greek city, which is the city of Corinth, where he'll preach through an amazing revival, and he'll stay in that city and minister there for about a year and a half. And Timothy finally comes back from Thessalonica, and he tells Paul what's happening. And Paul immediately sets out to write the Thessalonian Christians a letter. That's the letter we have, 1 Thessalonians, a letter to a church living in distressing times. Well, based on the report from Timothy, in spite of all the distress, some very positive things have happened. The believers were holding up well. They, they weren't panicking. And their faith in Jesus as Lord, Messiah, and Savior, well, that had taken deep root. And if anything else, that is one of the wonderful lessons that we learn from this book. Hard times, you see, are not an obstacle to the Christian faith. Look, you and I know that there are people, when, when they go through hard times, I mean, they begin to feel that perhaps God has abandoned them, maybe he doesn't care, or in some people's case, maybe God just isn't there. That's what they think. That's not what we find in Thessalonica. Whatever they had received from Paul, they never got the impression that if you come to Jesus, he promises you that suffering won't happen. Indeed, Paul must have taught them the opposite, that they had been called to participate in the sufferings of the Lord before they reached glory. See, as we read through this book, we're going to encounter four very important issues here. The first is that Paul's name was probably being slandered all throughout the city and he was concerned that the problems in that city wouldn't create divisions in the church there. Second, the church still had to, to figure out how to deal with distressing times. You know, it's one thing to hear that we must suffer before entering the kingdom. It's quite another thing to learn to live well through distressing days. And I think this book will teach us just that. The third thing that we are going to learn from this book is that in the midst of the storm, 
believers still needed to grow in holiness. They still needed to keep their eyes on Christ. They still needed not to get distracted from God's purpose in their lives. We have the same issue for us today. We also need to learn how in the midst of troubles and trials to keep our eyes fully fixed on the Lord and to give ourselves to spiritual growth. And fourth, the believers in Thessalonica needed to keep their eyes on the future and of the great hope that was laid up for them, that is, the second coming of Jesus. You know, reading through 1 Thessalonians can give believers today a sense that, that our issues are really not so different than the issues of other believers in the past, or for that matter, from the issues that the Thessalonians dealt with. Yeah, of course, the details between our situation and theirs is so very different. But the experience of distressing times, well, that's exactly the same. So let's read through this important book with great interest. Let's find out what God wants to teach us. Let's learn how to remain steadfast and unmoved. Let's remain confident and even joyful in distressing times. Take a look at the five chapters of this very small book and take this book to heart. Let the Holy Spirit teach you to flourish in times like these. Let's enjoy the reading of this book. Let's apply it to our lives. And let's be hopeful. These are distressing times, and yet Jesus is Lord. We're going to be fine. John, thanks so much. It's a great beginning to a great series. Let me ask you, is it possible that at least in Western society that we become ill-prepared as the church to deal with, with difficult or challenging days? Well, I think maybe some of that is just natural because we've You know, if we think about it, we've lived in the Western world under such a long umbrella of peace and security and safety, and we've been, you know, granted these outstanding freedoms that we have. Um, So, you know, we have come to believe that our lives are secure, um, but we've not realized how much uh, they're actually not secure. And so um, I think we are ill-prepared, but I think we do well to dive into Scripture, look at what God has said, Uh, not be surprised when the day of suffering comes or distress, and that's especially important in the days that we live today. Um, We need to remember that others have walked through a far more difficult place than we have gone to, and let's learn from their lives and let's be encouraged and not fearful. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. What a time in history. In one sense, who would have imagined? In another, the Bible suggests that we should expect such times. In either respect, it is certainly a reminder of those things that matter most. Our love for God, our love for family, and the calling each of us has as children of God to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the mission of Back to the Bible Canada. And we're so grateful that as a result of so many people across the country who give so generously that this mission continues. So thank you. Your commitment to giving allows this Bible teaching ministry to sustain its programming every day. So coast to coast, to each of you, we express our gratitude and please be assured every gift of any amount is so appreciated. To know more about the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada and all the Bible teaching resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit 
backtothebible.ca.